My name is Andrew Gamison, and it is my immense privilege each and every week to be with you for the Speaking for Him podcast. I'm so very thankful that you have taken the opportunity to spend some time with us today, and I hope that you will be encouraged. Whether this is your first time joining us or whether you have been with us for a long time, I hope that you come away with something that will encourage you as you continue on the marathon that is the Christian life. We all need encouragement and we need to remember that being conformed to the image of Jesus does not happen overnight. It takes a lifetime. And I am simply here to encourage you as you follow God through his process for your life. And I'm really excited to share with you the story of two people who have done that. They are missionaries to Chad through Baptist Missions by the names of Les and Carol Carew. Les and Carol are friends of my parents, and my mom and Carol have been friends since they were in grade school. So a long time history of friendship for the family. And some of you may uh, recall that a while back, I had their daughter Danielle on my podcast talking about her battles with selective mutism. And so I'm really excited to talk to the parents because I've known for years that they've been missionaries, but I hadn't really sat down and talked to them about it. So you're going to hear the first part of that conversation today. But before we get into that, let's talk about what is going on. Well, you know that on this podcast, I try to stand up for truth and to laud people that are also standing up for truth. And our first story comes out of Virginia. I'm Suparna Datta and I'm from Fairfax County, Virginia. When the pandemic hit, that's when we found out things that our children were learning or not learning. A few of us parents banded together because we thought that You know, educational excellence and merit is all that matters, not the color of your skin. And so we formed the coalition for TJ and we gave each other support and we reached out across the aisle, local government, state government, anyone who would who would uh, lend us their support. And and one of them was the then candidate Glenn Youngkin, and he completely supported us and I supported him. And um, uh, I, I was a very vocal parent advocate and um, when he asked me to be on the board of education I uh, I was thrilled to an audience as inclusive as our Virginia is you cannot reference the Declaration of Independence and Constitution as remarkable documents without also acknowledging that they contain fundamental flaws of enshrining slavery and limiting the protections that they provided for only to white propertied men I I just, I can't, I'm not comfortable with that language. I'm not comfortable with the language of of, uh, centralized government planning in the form of socialism or communist political systems is incompatible with democracy. I, I would I would concede on communism, but there are plenty of governments that call themselves socialist democratic governments. Uh, so, you know, what is socialism compatible with democracy? That would be a great debate to have in a, um, a 12th grade government uh, mm-hmm. civics class. Um, the Declaration and the Constitution, I think it's they're remarkable documents. I, I don't do not believe 
the Declaration and Constitution enshrine slavery, um, nor did they limit protections to white propertied men. As far as the uh, socialism or communist, I think socialism is just about as bad as, as communism. Socialism is like the nanny state, which predominates in so many parts of the world. It's It co-ops the important decisions belonging to families and individuals. I, I come from a country which used to be more socialistic now than in a then than it is now but it's it is it creates dearth dependency and depression somebody had to jump in and and challenge that viewpoint that you know america is great america's founding documents are great and i do believe that socialism um is very destructive coming from a country which was founded as a socialist country you know and it continues to be in india uh, I, I, I just disagree. I think that giving people their, their freedoms in, in every way makes for a better, um, better citizenry and being allowed to, to, uh, to decide things for ourselves rather than, rather than, you know, the government. You know, America won't be great if, if it, uh, doesn't, you know, is, isn't allowed to keep its independent, uh, streak. Uh, and freedom of thought. So this first story today brings to mind so much of what we've already discussed on the podcast, so I won't belabor the point, but I want you to think about this. The fact of the matter is that our democratic republic, which is what America is, it's not a straight democracy, it's a democratic republic, it is a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, and it was founded on the principle of personal responsibility. The idea that we could come together and make a better future for ourselves and our posterity. As a matter of fact, when the founders signed the Declaration of Independence, they said, we pledge our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor for us and our posterity. They were thinking ahead. They were thinking of the next generation. And to give context to what you just heard, this is a lady from India who lives in Virginia who apparently was provisionally appointed by Glenn Youngkin to the Virginia Department of Education and was ousted from that board for taking a stand that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are excellent documents. Now, I like what Charlie Kirk said a while back about this. He said it's important for us to realize that the framers are not perfect and that we need to have an understanding of that when we look at the Constitution. The framers are not perfect, but they put checks and balances in place to give us the best shot at a more perfect union. The reality is that when the Declaration was put in place and when the Constitution was framed, yes, slavery was a reality in the United States. But we need to realize that slavery did not originate in the United States. Slavery was a worldwide phenomenon, and there are some places and respects where it is still happening today, especially in the areas of sex slavery. And there are many wonderful people working 
to liberate sex slaves around the world, including here in the U.S. But just looking at slavery, chattel slavery, as it appeared in the colonies and in early America through 1865, it is the very constitution that this other board member very vocally was trying to tear down that gave us the opportunity to right the catastrophic wrong of slavery. The reality is that the Constitution of the United States and the way that our government was founded gives us an opportunity to right the wrongs in our nation unlike any other nation that exists. And I think we need to have the proper view of that. A lot of times we look at history and we think about 2023 and we say, well, it has to be exactly the way it was in 2023 or it was bad. Or we say, because something was bad then, we have to carry it through to today. Instead of looking at ourselves as victors and saying, you know what, it used to be this way, it no longer is. And I really appreciate this lady for talking about uh, growing up in a socialist country in India and talking about how that's a bad thing and how what we really need is to have people responsible and living for others and learning to achieve success by working hard and being responsible. And I bring up these stories because we cannot afford to fall asleep. We need to be aware that there is a constant battle for the hearts, minds, and souls of our children. And it happens at some of the highest levels of education. So something to be aware of. The next thing I want to share with you is a little clip from Charlie Kirk, who I just referenced when he talked about why he does what he does. Who are you? My name is Charlie Kirk and I love America. Why are you here? Because I love talking with people I disagree with. What have you done for your country? started an organization that's now in a thousand plus campuses to save the greatest culture and country ever to exist. Is it necessary? Well, considering I've been assaulted, followed, stalked, and had things thrown at me, the greatest protection I have is cameras. We record all of it so that we put on the internet so people can see these ideas collide. When people stop talking, that's when you get violence. That's when civil war happens. Because you start to think the other side is so evil and they lose their humanity. Marriages break apart when you stop talking. Churches fall apart. And I think what makes this country on the verge of going to a place we don't want it to go right now is we're afraid to go to places like this and have these conversations. I'm not. When we stop talking, that's when civil war breaks out. I really like that thought. The fact that we need to be able to have a discourse. We need to be able to talk about issues in the marketplace of ideas and not make them insults. It's important to have healthy debate. 
I, I know I already talked about our founders today, but that was one of the beauties of our founding was that these men got together in the Continental Congress and they hammered out, what does it mean to be a constitutional republic? What checks and balances are we going to put in place to make sure that we succeed? And I just really think that Charlie Kirk is is doing great work because he's going on these college campuses and he's literally putting forth these topics and saying, hey, let's have a discussion. And a lot of times when people try to challenge him, they just bring up the talking points that other people have put forth and they don't really do a lot of thinking on their own and they may get into shouting matches. One of the things I liked about that particular little clip that I just shared was the fact that the the girl, it seemed like she kind of started out from an adversarial place, like she wanted to trap him into something, but ultimately she was quiet and reserved and listened to what he had to say. I think a lot of times we form opinions based on what other people say instead of evaluating things for ourselves and evaluating things from the unchangeable standard of God's word. The bottom line here is that if it goes against the standard of God's word, it doesn't matter how persuasive it is because we need to have a moral standard. People get upset when it is said that America is a Judeo-Christian nation, or at least had its founding on Judeo-Christian values. But the reality is that without a firm value, without a firm reliance on the almighty hand of God, America would not exist. Uh, Benjamin Franklin famously said, Truly, God governs in the affairs of men. People have falsely said that Benjamin Franklin was a deist. A deist believes that God created the world and then left it alone. But one who says that God governs in the affairs of men certainly was not a deist. He was not a Christian because he once told George Whitfield, almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. And he was basically quoting King Agrippa in Acts. I don't know if he realized he was, but he was. And Paul said that he wished that King Agrippa would be just like him, except for his chains. What did he mean by that? He meant that he wanted King Agrippa to embrace Christianity because Jesus is the only one who died for us so that we could be brought to God. Every other religion in the world is about people trying to find some way to get to God. And God looked down at us and he said, there's no way that they are going to get to us, meaning mankind, so I need a plan to bring myself to them. So he and his only son Jesus made a plan before time began and Jesus said I'm willing to go 
to redeem the people that I've created. And we know that Jesus was active in the creation. We know that this was an action of a triune God because it says in Psalm 127, let us make man in our image. And we know in John chapter 1 that nothing was made without him, that him being the word and the word being Jesus. And so I think it's important for us to realize that we need continual discussion and debate to continue to see America thrive. When we stop being able to have discussion and we just acquiesce to popular thought, we are like a ship tossed by the waves. And that is not a place where any of us should want to be. Well, I have one more final clip to share with you today, and this is a veteran in the Congress talking about the importance of the Pledge of Allegiance. And the fact that we're having a political conversation about this is actually wrong. The only thing that we want to do is recognize the best, those brave men and women that are willing to give their lives and a sacrifice for us to be able to convene the day. I served in combat. I'm a West Point graduate. I am the kind of person that's willing to die for this country. For us to sit here together and offer just a little bit of homage to those that are willing to do that, I think is actually necessary. That flag represents the deaths of thousands of men and women. And every day that I get up, I look at that flag and I thank God. God that we are here. Quite frankly, we should be saying the pledge. The least we can do is to pay homage to the sacrifice of those that have come before us to say, Democrat or Republican, we are in this together. That flag is the one thing that unites us. Let's just take 30 seconds to put all of our differences aside and say, we can agree that this country is wonderful, has done outstanding things, and that brave men and women were willing to die for it. And that's what sets us apart from every other country in the entire world. And this is Congressman Wesley Hunt. He is a veteran and he is a black man and he is a conservative. Again, I don't bring up his color because it's important in and of itself. It's not. But I'm pretty sure that there are many people out there who would say that because he is black, he should not hold this position this opinion of the Pledge of Allegiance or anything to do with allegiance to America. But the reality is, folks, people don't realize how good we have it here in the United States of America. There are so many people who are fleeing other countries to come here. My my friend Brian, and I'm sure he didn't, originate this but he mentioned once when we were having a conversation he mentioned the gate test he said how do you know about the greatness of america well one way you know is the gate test when the gates of a closed country are open where do people go and one of the biggest places people go one of the most frequent places people go is the united states of america because We know what freedom means. Now, we are slowly losing that, 
but we do know what freedom means. And this man, I just felt, really articulated what the flag means and how important the flag is to us. And I think it's important for us to say, well, okay, if America isn't the best place to be on earth, what place is better? And I think if you do a solid bit of research and you take an honest look at other countries, I don't think you'll find a better place to live. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. Why? Because it has flawed human beings that are a part of it. But we have a system that makes it possible for America to right wrongs in a way that other countries don't. We have an opportunity through our justice system to make complaints as American citizens when we are mistreated that other countries can only dream about. So we should be thankful to live in this country. We should thank God for our liberty, but we should also stand up for our rights because we have them. And I think that's one thing that I have been more persuaded of in the last three years than ever before is that we need to make sure that we know our rights so that when they are challenged, we can graciously stand up against that challenge and prove that the liberty that we have in America is real. Because there's a lot of people that wish that they had the voice in our government that America has. And it's time for us to be grateful. I'm really excited at this time to share with you the first part of my interview with Lesson Carol Carew. It was such a pleasure to sit down and talk to them and hear their heart for the mission field. I had known that they had been on the mission field for several years, but it certainly means a lot more to me having heard their story in detail, and I think it will encourage you. And maybe God is calling you to missions, and he will use this interview as a way to stir your heart and to seek him on where you want to serve. I want to be quick to let you know that I think that we are all called to be missionaries, that we're all called to missions. I don't think that people that are on the foreign mission field are on some separate plane or echelon. And also that we are not called to other people's callings. But I do believe that God has a calling for each and every one of us and that if we want to be true to him, we need to figure out what ours is and embrace it fully. So with that being said, enjoy the first part of this conversation with Les and Carol Carew, missionaries to Chad through Baptist Mid-Missions.
Well, today it is my privilege to welcome to my podcast Les and Carol Carew. They are missionaries to Chad who are on uh, furlough right now, but they're getting ready to head back to the mission field. And so I'm really excited to talk to you guys about your mission work because I've heard that you guys have been doing mission work for several years, but I've never really sat down and talked to you guys about it. So thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having us, Andrew. We're glad you you chose to do this with us. Thank you. You are most welcome. Well, I want to start out uh, with a quote of the day. Um, I try to use a, a quote or a Bible verse that I think will inform the conversation. And I picked Romans 10, 13 to 15, because we're talking about missions today. And it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe on in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And that's Romans ten thirteen to 15. So I guess, first of all, um, I just like to kind of um, get your thoughts on these verses as we begin this conversation. Either one of you can answer. Well, I, I love those passages, especially because so many people, and we will reiterate this probably a couple of different times, but there are so many people that aren't coming to the mission field now, Andrew. And these people that we're with, that we serve with, are are begging and pleading for more people to come and to help. We had a woman one time who came and laid down prostrate on a floor in a, in a church, um, praying to God and asking God, and we were there seeing this, um, to please send more people to tell her children about Jesus because her children don't know. So thank you for that, for starting us off with that verse. Yeah, it's amazing to us that you know, in a, a country that is open to the gospel, a predominantly Muslim country that's open to the gospel, and we can't get people to come there. Yeah. You know, we can't get evangelical missionaries to come. It's, you know, yeah. it's a shame. Well, that is definitely something that is worthy of prayer and consideration. Um, so there may be some people in my audience who are are called to this uh mission field and so I would encourage you to give it your consideration and your prayer we're all called to different missions I know that I have been very strongly called to be a missionary here in the United States and I'm going to continue doing that until my very last breath because the gospel of Jesus Christ is where the power and the joy is at and so it's my privilege to be able to spread it wherever I go and I know you guys have similar feelings, so it's great to be fellowshipping yeah. with you today. Yeah, um, thank you. So as we get started, can you tell me a little bit about your family for those who don't know you? Well, maybe I'll start. Some of you might know. I'm, I was born in Chad, Africa. I was born to missionary parents, so I consider myself African-American because um, being born there <laughs> and uh 
My parents were Earl and Shirley Dannenberg, longtime missionaries. My dad's home with the Lord now. My mom is elderly, but um, holding on. And we praise the Lord for that. She's 94 years old now, Andrew. So, But she still loves talking about Jesus and sharing Jesus with others around her. Uh, we also, we have four children, and uh, they're all adults. Three of them are married. We have eight grandchildren so far. And, uh, yeah, we're just very thankful that all of our children have made a profession to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And um, I'm sure my husband could talk about his mom a little bit as well. And my mom just turned 90 here in December, and... You know, she's, she's doing well, but you know, as uh, a lot of people, when they get older, she has certain health, you know, issues that, uh, affect her quality of life, you know, but, but we're, we're pleased that she's able to, uh, live on her own with just occasional help from some family members. So yeah. you know, that's been a blessing. Yeah. What a rich legacy that is. And I think it's kind of neat that. Um, your mom, Carol, lives at Rust Haven, where my yes. brother Bartholomew is a chef. So we oh. have that that connection, and uh, that's kind of a neat thing. It's a great place to live in your final years. So that's just kind of a neat side fact. Yeah. Also, kind of neat for those who have listened to my podcast for any length of time, you'll know that I had their youngest daughter Danielle on my podcast last year. And her her testimony of how God delivered her um, from selective mutism and gave her uh, an outreach through YouTube to share the love of Christ with so many people. So it's exciting to make those connections. And uh, through my mom, I've known your family my whole life. So kind of an interesting yeah, yeah. thing to think about. Yeah. If I can add about your mom, it was, it's interesting because I met her when I was a young girl. We were home on, um, furlough, sorry. And, uh, when I met her, then after that, for years, years and years, she was one of the only ones that wrote me consistently. So I was very happy to know her then and to continue knowing her for all these years. So yep, our, our families go way back, Andrew, way, way back. <laughs> and over the last couple of years since that interview i've gotten pretty close to danielle and she's been a very big encouragement to me in my ministry yep. so that's been an exciting thing so the next question i have for each of you is just to share a little bit of your personal testimony and how you came to know the lord jesus well for me it was uh when when i was young my parents were members at uh Kinsley Baptist Church here where we're near right now. But uh they were never regular church growers. They would, you know, go and attend church faithfully for a while and then they would stop. But they were pretty good at taking uh me and my siblings and dropping us off for Sunday school. You know, so we were in Sunday school almost all the time. And it was through a Sunday school teacher at Kinsley Baptist that I was led to the Lord when I was uh, I can't remember if I was six or seven years old, but it was on an Easter Sunday that I, I came to Christ. And, you know, it's been a blessing. You know, there have been times when I wasn't always living for Christ, but 
you know, I always had that assurance. I knew I was saved. And for me, my dad led me to the Lord, Andrew, when I was a little girl. I was about five years old when my dad led me to the Lord. And I remember that so, so clearly that day. But like others that uh, you you are saved when you're young and you know you're saved. Um, I was 13, about 13, when I actually got baptized. I wasn't baptized until then. And then, you know, things did uh, go south in for me in my walk with the Lord, unfortunately. Um, but I knew he was always beside me. I knew right from wrong. My parents had in- instructed me well and drilled into me well the word of God. And I had memorized scripture. So anytime I was doing things that I knew were hurting the Lord, it really struck me hard. But it wasn't until after Les and I were married that I really, truly understood that I really, truly needed to submit not just part of me, but all of me to the will of God and give all of me to him to do with whatever he wanted to do. And that that was such an amazing day. And I remember it so clearly that day when I truly gave everything back to the Lord to take over my life and to lead and direct me. However, he saw fit. That Those are both so awesome stories. I think one of the most exciting things about uh, the Christian walk is how everybody has to come to God through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to heaven, Amen. but there's many, there's many journeys that bring us to that one way and so it's really yes. neat to hear other people's stories about how God worked in that way. And it's kind of interesting that you guys both talked about struggles after coming to faith. Cause I was just talking to my brother about this the other day is that some people who come to faith as adults, they have major struggles that they're dealing with when they come to faith. And then God takes away those struggles, right. you know, almost immediately upon their conversion which he definitely has the power to do. But as someone who came to Christ as a child, I said, I never really can remember. I mean, obviously I was a sinner. I am a sinner, but I can't remember any specific struggles with sin until after I was saved because I was saved so young. So exactly. it's kind of interesting the different perspectives um, that people have. But I also resonate with what you said, even though you went through um, your struggles with God, you knew that he was always there and he never left you. Um, yes. Because I always think of that when people say, well, I used to be a Christian and now I'm not. Well, people who say that don't understand what Christianity is because I remember as a young boy coming to Christ, but then as a young teen being so depressed and angry at God, especially after he took my baby brother um to heaven that yes. I was so mad at him and angry for about a year, but I still conversated with him. I was just mad, but I never, I never got to the place where I was like, I don't believe God exists because God's power was so prevalent in my life that there was no opportunity for me to ever even contemplate that. So I find, um, the things that you said very prevalent to that topic. Yep. I agree, Andrew, and it was, you know, 
even though I wasn't at the time, I really wasn't walking with the Lord. Like I knew in my heart I should be. I still longed for the fellowship of other believers during that time in my life. But I would, I would go to church and because I knew churchism and I knew church words, I could talk the talk that people thought they needed to hear from me. But I wasn't walking the walk that God wanted me to walk with. And so it wasn't until later, after I got my heart, my life right with God, that then I was like, okay, I feel completely free from all that past, all that junk in the past. I mean, I'm walking hand in hand with God as my personal Savior. And just as a word of encouragement to everyone listening, everybody has a past. And, but that's yeah. why Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on. Because Dang. if we continue to be obsessed with the things in the past where we messed up or where we were less than perfect, we'll never press on to the heights that God has for us. Well, you kind yeah. of answered this question because you were born there. Um, <laughs> but I know there was a while in your life where you weren't on the mission field. Um, you were here um, in Michigan raising your family and maybe some other places too. I'm not sure your whole story. Um, but my parents got reacquainted with you, um, mm-hmm. at some point in my childhood. Um, I think in some ways through Amway and you probably did some other things as well. But what, um, drew you back to Chad? Let's put it that way. What drew you back to Chad to come to the mission field yourselves in this country? Well, it was kind of a roundabout story. <laughs> When we were raising support for the field, our target, the country that we were raising support for was to go to the Central African Republic. And the Central African Republic has a long history of civil wars and coup d'etats. And, and when in 2013, when we had raised our support and were able to go, uh, the CAR was in another war. And we were not able to go to that country. Uh, there were some other missionaries that were still there, but Baptist Missions was afraid they were going to have to pull them out. So they didn't want us to go and then, you know, had to pull us out as well. So then we were trying to decide, okay, we have our support. What are we going to do now if we can't go there? And then it was suggested by one of the BMM leaders that uh, we could go to Southern Chad because uh Central African Republic, uh, they're all Sango speakers, and among others, but mainly Sango. Yeah. And in Southern Chad, there are also many Sango speakers, war refugees uh, from the wars in CAR, and others that have settled in Southern Chad. So that was the reason we, we finally went to Chad. Yeah. Um, after some time in Chad, we were able to go to the Central African Republic, uh, and we were there for a few months, but it was soon after we got there that we realized with the, the ministries and all the things we were involved in, in Chad, uh, uh, that we were not able to do in the Central African Republic because in the CAR, we were confined to the capital city. We could not travel outside of the capital city because of of uh war and skirmishes still going on for security purposes. So at that point, we decided to go back to Chad 
where we could go out and reach these refugees and others in smaller villages and outlying places. If I can add to that, I'm going to back up a little bit, Andrew, and just fill in some blanks for people that might be listening. Um, because my husband and I were just your typical everyday American people. We were serving faithfully in our home church and we were leading a lot of ministries within our home church. And then, um, my husband decided that he'd go on a short-term trip to Jamaica. And so he went to Jamaica for a short-term trip. And he came back and we started talking about going on a short-term trip to Central African Republic to visit places that I grew up as a child. And um, when we got there, we both had, well, I had a great time. And he had a terrible time. And he told me later on, he said, don't ever talk to me about going back to Africa again. I will never go back. But God has a sense of humor. And if you say never to God, watch out, because he might change that. And so then in um that was in 2006, when we went out there for the first time together as a couple. And then we came back to America And by 2008, we had already started application processes with BMM, Baptism and Missions, to go out as full-time missionaries. So that kind of brings you up to speed on how we ended up on the mission field. It wasn't something that originally either one of us had thought we would do, but we were not going to say no to God and whatever he chose to have us do. So, um, yeah, it was a great, a great awakening to both of us. (laughs) Well, Les, can you say a little bit more about how you got from never again to we're going? I'd like to hear from your perspective what that was like. No, well, when we went out to the CAR in 2006, she said it was a miserable trip. For me, I, I had gotten sick uh, shortly after we we arrived there. Uh, the food did not appeal to me at all. We were out in remote villages and and you know being having stomach issues and being sick the whole time, you know, really kind of turned me off to the whole thing. And I did not speak the language at the time, and, and uh, my wife was too involved in talking, which is a common thing. Uh, rather than translating for me. So that was kind of miserable for me, too. So, I mean, there was just a lot of reasons that turned me off to it right away. But even while we were there, you know, I saw, you know, I was doing some teaching uh, through a translator, and, you know, we were seeing the ministries and talking to the people. And so we just we just saw so many needs there that we thought we could address. So, so what? changed it um what changed me was it was just a thing over time you know it just kind of wore me down over over time seeing the things seeing what i was doing with my life here as opposed to you know what could we do to help uh the people out there and it was it, it can be an easy choice yeah when he finally started saying to me yes you know, I was shocked, Andrew, because I really did. I really truly thought he would forever be saying no. So it was a pleasure to see the change. 
Well, and I think it, you bring up something really important for marriage relationships too. Like this kind of ministry that you guys are doing doesn't work if only one of you is on board. You have to right. both be on board. And I love the way that you didn't, you didn't get pushy. You just were like, okay, God, you're going to have to deal with less and change his heart. And he did proving right. that that was what you were supposed to do. So I, I like that part of your story and it's very encouraging. And I, I think of my own story. I really compare it to the story of Moses because I made a lot of excuses as a young boy for why I couldn't serve God. And it was finally when I was 14 years old where God was like, Andrew, I have a plan for your life. And if you'll just get off the throne of your own life and let me take control, then I can do things with you and through you that you can't even imagine. And so now I've been doing preaching ministry for almost 14 years and I've been in prison ministry for over 20. And so it's just been amazing that God is true to his word. Amen, Andrew. That's so important that we are willing to listen to him. And, you know, it's funny when, when Les originally said no, you know, he never would go back. I, it was hard for me. And I went to our pastor's wife. And she's the one who really encouraged me never to talk about it again and just let the Lord pray and let the Lord, you know, determine the course that he would set for us. So I'm very thankful for that, for those days. All right. Well, now that we've talked about uh, why you guys went to Chad and how you got there, can you tell us a little bit about the country of Chad, maybe four or five things that maybe we don't know about Chad, but maybe we should? Well, I think uh, there's very little that most people do know about Chad. At least I'm speaking about people here in the United States. Uh, I think people are pretty uh, unknowledgeable about <laughs> those inner countries of Africa, talking about Congo and the CAR and, and Chad. Mm-hmm. People don't really understand them. C.A.R. has long history of wars, and people don't, they don't know, they don't hear about it, because these countries are not politically important to a lot of other countries in the world. Uh, Chad is a country of uh, a little over 17 million people. It's largely Muslim country. Um, I believe that the, uh, the Muslim population is probably near, well, between 60 and 70 percent now. And where we are is in the very southern edge of Chad, uh, next, you know, very close to the CAR border. And the, the Muslim population is, is moving further south. You know, the country has been divided where the Muslims are most in the north and the non-Muslims were in the south, but it's, it's getting increasingly more Muslim even in the south where we are, where we live in Chad. Uh, we're in a very Muslim community. There's a mosque that's just kitty corner across from our house. So, you know, um, Chad, uh, like CR, has a long history of political turmoil. Uh, right now, they're still in turmoil because uh, three years ago, the president was shot and killed, and his son was the highest-ranked military official, and he just took control of the country. And, uh, people are calling for it to be turned over to a civil government. 
And they had a plan in place to do that. It was supposed to be a two-year plan. Well, that began three years ago, and it's still in military control. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of political unrest uh, in the country. But from my perspective, from my end, I would reiterate what Les says. Um, but the warmth of the people that are there, the love of our Muslim neighbors that they have for us, I, I think that Americans are afraid to face and talk with other Muslims here in America. And our Muslims, if you come to visit us, our friends in our neighborhood will welcome you into their home. And there's things that they do as far as hospitality goes, Andrew, that would put Americans to shame. Yeah, there's one of the questions on your list was, what was one of the things that might surprise people about our work? And that's probably a big one, that the the Muslim population there, that they are the most hospitable people that I've ever encountered. Yeah. You know, where we are is, is mostly the Sunni Muslims, you know, which are, are not the sect that most of the uh, terrorist activity comes comes out of. But they are the most hospitable people that I've ever encountered. And I think that's something that people here in America don't understand. When they see people in Muslim dress or something, they get this feeling about them of uncertainty and maybe even a little fear, you know, and it prevents them from talking to these people who are really eager to talk to you, yeah. you know, even about what they believe as opposed to what you believe, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> we have one of our Muslim friends, his name is Adam, and Adam has been asking us for years now to please find somebody who is willing in America to come to Chad to the capital, not down where we are, where it's really hard for an American to to do things, but to the capital and open a English learning center there where people can come and they can learn English just from the Bible. He doesn't want anybody to come and teach using other methods. He wants somebody to come, Andrew, and teach English using scripture. Can you, I mean, what other country, Muslim country, can you go and have somebody, another Muslim man, begging for somebody to come and do this? The door is open to Chad. But Les and I are the only um, Baptism and Missions couple in the whole entire country. That it sounds so much like colonial America. Um, because back in those days, the Bible was the primary textbook for teaching kids to read and for yep. teaching other subjects. And now we've gotten to this place where the Bible, um, is anathema to a lot of people in our own country, which is surreal to believe that we're living through that time period, but it's so encouraging to know that the Bible is going forth and that there are people that want to hear from the Bible, even if they haven't yet bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. What a great open door and we'll definitely be praying. And I'll encourage my audience to pray that those doors will be opened and that the right person will uh, heed God's call and choose to take that opportunity. Cause it sounds like a really good one. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for that. Well, again, it was my tremendous privilege to sit down with Les and Carol. So thank you both for taking the time to share with us. I'm excited for you to hear the balance of this conversation next week. But I was really convicted uh, when I was listening to their story about the fact that we need to continue to listen to God's call. As I said at the top of the show, God isn't going to call all of us to foreign missions, uh, but he does have a call for each of us, and we need to be in tune with him in order to know what that is and to do it. Uh, He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will and it will be done unto you. So if we want to know God's will for our lives, we need to abide in him. And then we also know that if we lack wisdom, we are to ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. He doesn't withhold his wisdom from those who really want it. But he also says, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. So we need to ask God for wisdom and we need to ask in faith, nothing wavering. And he will give it to us. Well, that's about all the time I have for this week, but I hope that you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, that you will share it with your family and friends, and that you'll be back next week for the remainder of this important conversation. With that being said, I hope that you have a wonderful week, and that you keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.